Worshiping, worshiping the Lord is our responsibility as believers and great privilege. And it's one of the things that we do every week when we come here. And another thing that we do when we come together is to state, as Scripture does, that our lives are to be acts of worship. They're to be lives. of We are to be worshiping God with the things that we do. It's a logical thing to do according to Romans chapter 12. Well, welcome to Grace Community Church. I, I, I see some faces that I think are new. I've just seen you in passing. If you're here for the first time, we extend to you a, a very special welcome and glad that you've chosen to worship the Lord here with us today. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. And you saw the other uh, handsome guys that are on that uh, board that actually they make me look. Well, no, I'm, not just, I'm just going to stop right there. I'm just not going to go any way in any direction with that. You'll be hearing from one of our elders this morning and several elders over the coming weeks in our series on a place in the family. Let's think about family for just a little bit. Um, it, do you have something in your possession that reminds you of someone who was very dear to you but has gone on, is no longer with us? And do you, in fact, at times um, do things that this person liked to do sort of in honor or in memory of someone who is no longer here. And, and, and when you do it, it's kind of like this person is with you. You know, their presence is there. We're doing this because mom used to like to do this or, or, or Nana or whoever it is used to like to do that. It's a blessing uh, when parents have their affairs in order uh, so that when the Lord calls them uh, to, to be with him, assuming they're believers, that there's not a lot that is potential for conflict with the family. And there, look, there are lots of families where you'd think, oh, there'd be no conflict here. Look, we are a fallen people. It's a blessing when parents have everything worked out. Allison's mom uh, had her funeral service done. And after the service, people went home and said, I'm going home and planning my service, you know, because it just it, it took away any chance for anybody to say, well, I would like this, I would like that. We just are grateful for those who put their affairs in order. Uh, our current series is not only about family in the sense that we understand family growing up, but it's about God's family. It, it, and it's both our privilege and our responsibility to pass on that which has been given to us. There are things probably in your family that, goes, that go back three or four generations. Uh, in this family, at the church, what we have been given goes all the way back to the time of the apostles, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which when believes means, when believed means that we go back all the way to Jesus and we have him. When you read the short letter of 2 Timothy, that the apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, shortly before his execution, uh, in, in addition to the non-mistakable feel of a farewell letter, when you read 2 Timothy, it's like Paul is saying goodbye. He's saying, get here if you can, but essentially you may not make it. Get here before winter, if at all possible, 
if I'm still here, it would be nice to have a coat and some other things. But it has the feel of a farewell letter. But you also get the sense that Paul was making arrangements. Not about his estate. His estate was entirely in heaven. Entirely in heaven. But Paul was making arrangements uh, for, for the transfer of a far more valuable resource than any material possession that he had. The transfer of the truth of the gospel. 2 Timothy 3, uh, 1, 13-14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That good deposit was the gospel. And Paul is passing it down to Timothy. So not only did the Lord through the apostle Paul pass on the gospel to Timothy and by extension to all of us, but he also provided a structure for the safekeeping of the gospel. If you have an heirloom from three or four generations ago, probably you've got it in some kind of a container or some, some kind of setting that is going to protect it from deterioration. Paul, the Lord through the apostle Paul, provided a structure to safeguard the gospel, and that is the church. In fact, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles because they were written to Timothy and Titus who were church leaders. And much of our understanding for the design of the church comes from those pastoral epistles. Now we talked about a few weeks ago in Acts, how in Acts 6 the people were having some of their needs not met and the the apostles said, well, okay, let's ordain deacons then. And deacons can attend to those. And the structure kind of built. Uh, it's important to note that, that, that a great deal of what we understand about church is in the Scriptures. It was written in the New Testament, um, but not all of it is in the New Testament. Not everything that we do is specifically, directly stated in the New Testament. But the principles of church life are evident. And the basic structure for the church was in place by the time that the apostles died and the scriptures were written. But what you see when you start understanding the when this letter was written, when this letter was written, when this happened, when that happened, you will note that the church was a work in progress along. Again, Acts 6, they came up with the deacons and then later Paul is establishing this he's establishing that now don't let that trouble you that the fact that it it, it wasn't all laid out right at the first the basic pattern for church is in Acts 2 where we started this this series Uh, the structure uh, of the church was seen there at Jerusalem but a lot was filled in along the way but God works that way. He often works through process. He created by fiat and he created through process. God said, let there be light and there was light. But he also said, let the earth sprout. And it did. Setting about his process of accomplishing his divine plan. But often through natural processes. He has determined that life go a particular way and we grow as human beings. We, we, we gain more knowledge. Uh, 
when you are sick and the chemotherapy works, that's a really great thing. When it doesn't work, you say God chose in his divine plan not to heal this person, but he chose over here to heal this person through medicine. We're constantly looking for miracles. And in some ways, it's like, well, I guess God chose not to get involved here because he didn't heal my loved one. And yet, God's sovereignty oversees all of that. All of the, the advancements that we have made in, in life. We were able to drive here this morning because of God's divine sovereign plan. We go to the doctor and we're cured of our diseases a good bit of the time. Which is why we're living so much longer these days. Because of God's sovereign plan. And God does that oftentimes gradually. Everything we need to know about God and His life is found in Scripture. But sometimes we understand it more fully. And, and so we can function better according to the principles by our own growth. When God gave His word to mankind, He didn't put men into trances, causing them to write mechanically. He used the writer's personalities, their passions, circumstances to give his word to the world. So it's not surprising then that with regard to the church, that Paul and others were understanding more and more about God's plan for the ages in the church as they matured and grew. Um, So, some of you are familiar with the book, The Trellis and the Vine. It's really a great book. It'd be good for everyone uh, to read. But it's talking about discipleship in the church. And, and the point is being made that, that, the, that the life that is found in the vine is far more important than the structure or the trellis that supports the life in the vine. And lots of times churches give so much attention to the trellis, to programs and and to appearances and to activities and things going on that the life doesn't get much attention at all. You have to give some attention to the structure of the church because if the trellis is broken down and it's not in good repair, then at some point the vine could grow wild and just choke itself out. There's, there's so much going on in such a disorderly fashion that the life is not able to... To, to progress the way that it's intended to be. Um, so, most of the sermon series here at Grace are, are, are taken straight from Scripture. We go through a book. Uh, this particular series is more topical in nature. Life is always the goal. Every once in a while, though, we have to give attention to the trellis, to the structure that God has provided for the gospel to be able to flourish. Because if we don't give attention to the structure, then the life is not able to grow in the ways that God intended. This is going to be especially true in these next several weeks where I, along with several elders, talk about the ways that we can strengthen the trellis known as Christ Community Church so that the life of the gospel, so that Jesus can be exalted and the life of the gospel move forward. This morning, the topic is church membership. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 12 and then a few verses 
in chapter 14. I almost never read verses like that, just pulling them out. Not pulling them out of context. I'm just telling you the context is about church life. And Paul was stating some very important principles about church life in the two verses that we will read. So, would you please stand as we read 1 Corinthians 12 in just a couple of verses in chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about the body of Christ and he's talking to a local church. He's not talking about the larger body, although certainly it's true for that too. But he's talking to a local church in Corinth. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, then that, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then in chapter 14, verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then in verse 40, But all things should be decent, done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, um, we recognize the treasure that we have in Jesus, the treasure that we have in the gospel of Jesus that connects us with you through repentance and belief. We thank you that we have the privilege of sharing it with others. Lord, we also have a responsibility to handle it carefully. And today is... Bert Wallace speaks to us. We pray that our eyes and our hearts would be open to the privileges and responsibilities of membership. In Jesus' name, amen. Coal miners and stuff like that. And uh, it was hard to tell them that I was a theater, you know, major, you know, um, but uh, in college. But, but I worked in the shop, in the seam shop, and so I could talk to them about that, about working in the shop. I, that has nothing to do with anything, um, <laughs> except my life and who I am. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, my interest in theater has to do, I think, as I thought over the years, about a couple of things. 
One is that it has to do with uh, the body. Theater is a, a physical thing. It's, you know, actors, uh, they're using their bodies in space and time and audience members physically in presence with those actors. You know, so it's different than movies, which are great, and I, I love movies, but it's, you're not in the physical presence of actors in, in a movie. Um, so I like that, you know, and I'm very much into that in my theological thinking about the embodiment, our embodiment. You know, I used to be, as a teenager, uh, rather heretical in my thinking about the body. Uh, I sort of thought of the body as a bad thing, you know, that, that our flesh is corrupted and leads us into all kinds of bad things. And someday, thank goodness, we'll die and the body will go away and we won't have to deal with that bad thing anymore and our spirit, you know, can kind of go up and be with God, which is an entirely heretical and unbiblical way of looking at the body. The flesh is good. It was created by God as a good thing. Uh, and all references in Scripture to the resurrection are physical. I mean, our physical bodies are going to rise up. And I don't know how that works. Uh, especially with people who died a thousand years ago, you know, who's nothing left but atoms of them scattered all around, you know, nothing left of Paul uh, physically. Uh, but somehow our physical bodies will be re resurrected and be with uh, Christ in heaven. So, you know, that's one thing I really like about theater is the embodiment uh, of it, the physicality of it. And, and very much in connection with that, the other thing that I really like is the community associated with theater. You know, theater is about people in relationship with each other, uh, both actors on stage uh, doing their thing and the audience relating to itself, uh, again, physically in each other's presence. And then, of course, there's a relationship between the actors on stage and the audience uh, in their presence. So those are, those are the two things that I really like about theater. Uh, but that's really just my job, um, not the most important thing about me when I introduce uh, myself to uh, classes at the beginning of the year, I sort of say, well, I'm a lot of things, you know, I'm a husband and a father and a, uh, you know, a theater guy and whatever else I am, you know, but the, but the most important thing about me is that I'm a Christian, you know, that's kind of my main identifier. Um, and uh, my church membership, uh, which I talk about a little bit to them, is very connected to that. Um, and that's the connection I'm going to try to make for you today, is the connection between uh, our faith and the idea of church membership. Um, I don't know if this is still true, but uh, many years ago, a church leader, when I was a teenager, told us that businessmen were told or had this general idea that if you move into a new community, one of the first things you should do is find a good church uh, to join. Uh, because you make a lot of good contacts there, meet people, make a lot of business contacts and stuff like that. Uh, I, I don't know if that's still true. I don't know if like modern uh, young businessmen would, would do that today. Uh, but it does make the point that uh, the way church membership has been and sometimes still is thought about is kind of a club mentality, sort of a community, community some sort of community organization uh, that you join. Um, based on a lot of, you know, a lot of factors, and it's, it's very much about individual choice. Um, but I'm going to sort of talk about it as a very different thing than that, uh, as really a declaration of our membership as a part of Christ's kingdom. Uh, I, I used, uh, in part in preparing for this, this wonderful small book called Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, he is a, a part of uh, the Nine Marks Ministry, which is out of Capitol Hill, 
Baptist Church in uh, Washington, D.C., which is pastored by Mark Dever, uh, who's a very interesting fellow. Uh, several of us went to a conference a number of years ago that he spoke at, uh, and he talked there about uh, membership. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of jokes, um, some of you would be more familiar with this than others, about the Baptist church and how they deal with membership. Um, and the, the, the roles of many Baptist churches are often rather swollen uh, because there are people on those roles who are long dead, uh, people on those roles who have moved away 20 years ago, you know, but never formally moved their letter, you know, away from that church. And so, you know, you've got these big numbers, but they don't really reflect the active or even actual, even living membership of the church. Uh, and so when Mark Dever uh, came to uh, Capitol Hill Baptist, he uh, takes membership very seriously, and he um, sort of made the church in a very painstaking way go through their roles and determine, you know, who was dead, who had moved away a long time ago, you know, uh, who became a member when they were a little kid, but then haven't attended in 30 years, you know, that kind of thing. And he, he made them go through and, and ferret all that out. And then in the same way that the church voted to make each person individually a member, he required his church to vote each person now officially off of the membership role, all these people, you know. Uh, and, he, and he was telling us about this and saying that, that we did that very deliberately, or I did that very deliberately, to... Um, make the point that membership is important. It's not just a name on a list. You know, it, it is an active and important uh, part of the life of the body of Christ. So I, anyway, I would recommend this book if you're interested in this topic. It's very short and easy to read. I'm going to refer to it just a little bit. Some ideas I, I pulled from this. Uh, certainly everything, there's no difference in what I'm going to say and what you would find in here. Um, you can see my three points that I'm going to make about church membership up there. It's biblical, it's covenantal, and it's integral. I didn't mean to be so, like, pastory, you know, when I came up with this, uh, this little, little points here. I guess if they all started with the same letter, that would be, that would be better. But um, I tried to make it ABC. When I saw it, when I got biblical and covenantal, I tried to come up with an A, but I couldn't, I couldn't get that. Um, so anyway, those are, those are my points, and, I, and the, I'm going to start with, with the first one about it being biblical, which is a point, actually, that some people would, might take some exception with. I don't know if anyone in here would, but some people might protest, well, that, that concept really isn't explicitly mentioned in the Bible. That word isn't used, although, of course, the word you know, member, being a member, is used. We just read it used over and over again uh, in 1 Corinthians. We're members of the body. Uh, but certainly there's nothing in Scripture that um, would make the explicit point, you are to formally join as a member a local church body. Um, I'm going to uh, make the point that even though it's not explicitly stated, it is in fact uh, there, despite the fact that some people would call it extra-biblical uh, or even unbiblical. I don't know if too many people would call it unbiblical, but, uh, but I think both of those terms are, are rather misleading. Uh, in terms of uh, the notion of membership, I would, I would in fact argue that it is biblical. Um, it is assumed. It's assumed in Scripture. And that's what I'm going to hope to show you here for a few minutes, though maybe not stated. Uh, a, a, a similar principle that's not stated but assumed in Scripture is the Trinity. Uh, I don't think too many people, there, there are some groups of Christians who would take exception with this, but uh, very relatively few would take exception with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture, um, and yet 
everyone, virtually everyone today, would take that as orthodox doctrine. You know, God is uh, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one substance, three persons, etc. Right? But that's not something that is explicitly stated in Scripture. It is assumed, however, and we can trace it back. The Holy Spirit works over time. He's been working with us for 2,000 years to, to develop uh, doctrines and, and help us to figure things out. Um, I'm going to suggest that the idea of church membership, while perhaps not as fundamental as uh, the Trinity, uh, is a biblically assumed principle. Um, it's throughout the establishment of the early church. Um, the apostles, uh, as they went throughout the ancient world, uh, both the apostles and the early missionaries, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, all those guys, they were establishing these churches uh, everywhere they went. And when they did that, I'm going to turn to Acts 14.23 and read that to you. And this is just one, one short verse. But um, as this is happening, this is specifically talking about uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, going around and establishing city after city after city. It's these long list of cities all over the place. Um, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the idea of an elder, or elders, actually very important to make that point, it's a, a plural, elders, uh, appointed in every church. But if, if you have leaders, uh, that's implying that there are followers, that there are members of that body for them to lead. Um, it's peppered throughout, and that's, uh, that's throughout Acts. You see that um, uh, in Acts 15, uh, there's a big council held at Jerusalem. Uh, where they're, again, discussing a, a doctrinal matter, what we now call a doctrinal matter, uh, which I'm very grateful they settled the way they did, which is should uh, salvation be available to the Gentiles, you know, or, or to Jews only. Uh, that matter was brought before a council at Jerusalem, which was made up of apostles and elders of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, they, made that, they had that debate. Uh, the plurality of, of men who were the elders and, and the apostles discussed it. Uh, and then it was their spokesman, uh, apparently the head elder was James, the brother of Jesus, not James the Apostle, um, who received those reports from Peter and Paul and others. By the way, side note, making, in my mind, James a better candidate for the first pope uh, than Peter because he's the one who made the final call at this council and Peter sort of went to him and said, hey, what do you think about this? You know, and James said, here's what we're going to do. Different topic, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it's, the point is there were elders at, at this main church in Jerusalem. Um, the uh, churches throughout you know, the, the ancient world that were established all had elders. All of Paul's letters are addressed to, addressed to specific churches, uh, not to simply the church or Christians, sort of generically speaking, but to specific churches. Obviously, though, we, we find application in those letters. Uh, those were not simply written through God's providence to the church at Ephesus or the church at Corinth. They were specifically written to those churches, but then they were also written to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the point I'm really trying to make there is there were these specific church bodies that were established with their, with their elders. Um, Timothy, uh, uh, Brad referenced Timothy just a few minutes ago. Uh, I'm just going to read to you from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, uh, where uh, Paul is talking basically about how that, the church at Ephesus uh, should function. He's giving a lot of explicit instructions about that. Uh, and in verse 17, he says, 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, and it goes on to talk about the elders. But again, uh, this is sort of making the point that uh, those who are preaching and teaching are worthy of honor and respect, uh, that they are the ones who are charged with leading this particular flock, shepherding this particular flock. Uh, again, the, the presence of a flock, a specific flock being implied there. Um, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, possibly Paul, uh, says, um, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, so clearly it's a biblical principle that there are, there are local church bodies uh, with established leaders uh, who, and the accountability really works both ways there. I'm going to sort of talk about that in a, in a few minutes, about how you know, there is responsibilities both ways. Um, even if you try to argue that the uh, concept of membership in a church uh, is extra biblical and the, that the Bible says nothing about formally joining a church, you, you could try to argue about that, but what you can't argue about is that we are called to submit to our spiritual leaders, uh, to the elders. There's, there's no biblical argument against that. And so it would follow that if a group of elders is saying, we think you should formally join this church body, uh, you are called to submit to that. Um, so I've, I think I've made the case, I hope I've made the case, that it's, it's a biblical principle, this idea of uh, membership in a, in a body. Um, it's throughout the New Testament, uh, it's, but it's really older than just the New Testament. It's not something that's only found in the New Testament. It's a covenantal uh, relationship, my second point. Um, very different from, again, the businessman who comes and finds a church to join so that he'll make some business contacts. Um, a covenant, as most of you know, is a, is a binding agreement between two parties. Uh, it's, and it's, it's a formal agreement as well. It's not just kind of an understanding or an unspoken agreement. I mean, it's, it's a formalized, uh, a serious uh, statement of understanding, agreement between two parties. Um, and it's usually marked by some sort of ceremony uh, and spoken declaration uh, of whatever the covenant is. And we, again, we see this throughout the Bible and in the Old Testament from the very beginning. Uh, uh, God establishes his covenant with Noah uh, by, and he places the rainbow in the sky as formalizing this, uh, this covenant, you know, that he will not destroy the earth again by water. Um, when God formalizes his covenant with Abraham, uh, he, there is this uh, formal ceremony, perhaps a vision, but still ceremonial in nature where uh, Abraham divides sacrificial animals and then the smoking fire pot and the burning torch pass between the animals as a symbol of God's uh, sovereignty and uh, God's dominion and so forth. A very, a very, you know, it's a formal thing, this covenant, um, and established specifically and formally. Uh, even the first marriage uh, is uh, signified by some ceremonial acts. Uh, God makes the woman, Eve, he brings her to the man, it's a reflective of our modern wedding ceremony, um, 
And the man even recites what you could even call the first uh, wedding vow. You know, when he sees the woman, you know, he says, what does he say? Here she is, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Um, and then the Bible goes on to talk about how the man and his wife will come together. The man will leave his father and mother and cleave with his wife. Um, he also, by the way, another side note, I, I just I thought about not saying this, but I think I will. He says, uh, he doesn't just say bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He says, at last, or finally, bone of my bone, which, which is an interesting thing to say if you've only been waiting a, a few hours uh, for that. But anyway, that's, that's, another, that's another discussion. Uh, that's kind of a joke. Um, the, the fact of uh, um, this, another implication that I keep talking about things that are implied in, in Scripture uh, is, you know, the, the use of the terms wife and husband. You know, it's not just man and woman, wife implies a husband, implies marriage. Um, when a man will take his wife, uh, implies this covenantal formalized relationship, not just a man will take a woman. Right? Um, so it, it's, a, it's an analogy that many of you have heard me make before, and that is uh, church membership being a covenantal relationship is very analogous to marriage. Um, there's certainly some differences, but I think there's a number of significant similarities between the covenant of marriage and the covenant of church membership. Uh, one, one, thing, one of those things is that it's a formal declaration. It's not uh, something that's casual. It's not something that uh, you just kind of fall into. It's something that you take seriously and formalize when you enter into it. Um, not too many people in here, I think, would, would uh, sort of equate marriage and living together. Um, we would say that uh, a man and a woman should formalize their, their relationship, should enter into the covenant of marriage and not enjoy the benefits of marriage without entering into a covenant of marriage. Um, it's, uh, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you hear this much anymore, but occasionally uh, you'll hear it and you used to hear this idea of, well, you know, we're together and we don't need to get married because what is marriage? It's just a piece of paper, right? Um, but that's nonsense. I mean, you know, marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's a, it's a covenant, a formalized covenant. Um, the way we do it has certainly changed over time, over the centuries. Um, but um, the Bible doesn't give us any explicit instructions about how to marry, you know, what the marriage ceremony should be like. Um, but it's assumed. It's assumed that we will formalize this covenant um, when, we, uh, when we marry. Um, so formal membership uh, is an analogous thing. It's a way of publicly stating your allegiance to a particular church body, much like marriage is that. It's a picture. Uh, it's a picture. Let me, I'm going to read a quote from, uh, from this book, from church membership. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in here, like I said, but there's, at one point he gives a list of uh, uh, 12 reasons that membership matters. And one of those is uh, membership is how we embody and experience biblical images. Uh, I think that's a, a wonderful, again, with my interest in embodiment, it's a, a very interesting uh, picture itself, that statement of how in the same way that marriage is a picture uh, of the Trinity in some ways, of the, the relationship of Christ and his church, which is very frequently referred to as a uh, uh, marriage and a bride and all that imagery. 
Um, in the same way, formal church membership pictures uh, the community of the church, the communion of the saints, uh, how things will be in heaven when we're all uh, citizens of the holy city. So uh, it's a public picture of these things. Um, a covenant where, uh, implies responsibility on both sides. In a marriage, the man has duties to the woman, the woman has duties to the man, uh, and those are, those are laid out. Um, elders have responsibilities to the members and vice versa. Christ and his church. I don't know that I'm comfortable saying exactly that Christ has responsibilities to us, but he has made his promises to us, uh, and uh, we certainly have our responsibilities to him. All, again, formalized, uh, both in marriage and in uh, church membership. Uh, it's a serious commitment. Uh, it's something that you should not enter into lightly. Uh, neither of these things, marriage or church membership, um, it's not something to be thought of as a consumer-minded kind of individual choice, you know, kind of shopping around and which one looks the best to me, what's the best bargain, uh, which one pleases me the most on some personal level of taste. Um, I would uh, strongly urge you to avoid, in, in, certainly in your church uh, relationships, this sort of con consumerist uh, mentality that's very easy for us to fall into. Um, I certainly think that it's uh, appropriate when you move into a, a new area, say, you move somewhere and you're in a new place, to visit several local church bodies, uh, see what's going on there, uh, see where you feel like you fit in or you, know, you make some, some connection. Uh, I think that's perfectly appropriate to do, but I think once you make that decision and join, uh, you need to stay there and not um, think, well, I'll stay here as long as this is kind of serving me in some way, as long as I'm happy with the way things are going here. If not, I'll hop on down the road somewhere else. You know, I used to have a, a friend who would say, you know, he would sort of really bemoaning this idea of church, church hopping, you might call it. And he would say, you know, what if, you, what if you're uh, in China and you go to some underground church and you get mad at somebody at the church? You know, what do you do? You know, what are you just going to go on down, well, there's not a church on down the road, you know, I mean, you, you just, you got to live, and that's what community is all about, you know, community is not finding a bunch of people exactly like you, who think exactly the way you do, and agree with everything that you think, and getting along with them, it's about living with people who don't agree with you on everything, who are different than you, um, and you have things in common, but you also have differences, and living with them anyway, even though you disagree on certain things, um, so I would advise you to avoid that shopping mentality. And, and again, going back to this sort of marriage uh, analogy, I think that there are a few reasons, few reasons, a few, to leave uh, a church uh, in, this, in the same way that there are a few reasons to leave a marriage. Um, the Bible essentially gives us two uh, reasons, legitimate reasons to leave a marriage. One is adultery. Uh, the other is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Um, again, implication, by implication, there are a lot of things that are not legitimate reasons to leave a marriage. Uh, the modern notion of irreconcilable differences. Um, we just fell out of love with each other. Uh, and the worst, the worst, well, I don't know, there's probably worse things than this, but the thing that really annoys me is, well, I just have to be happy. 
you know, God would want me to be happy. He wouldn't want me to live in this miserable situation. Um, those are not legitimate reasons to leave a marriage. Um, what are the legitimate reasons to leave a church? Frankly, I think they're pretty analogous to the legitimate reasons to leave a marriage. Um, um, you could probably flip-flop these uh, the way I've arranged them. But if um, heresy is being preached, if you ever hear anybody up here saying something heretical, um, that would be a reason to, to leave. Um, I, I would equate that to the idea of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Uh, you know, if, if the true gospel is not being preached. Now, I'm not talking about disagreeing on fine points, okay? Seven-day creation, my little allusion earlier. You know, don't, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about core fundamental heresy. Uh, the Bible is not the word of God. Jesus was not fully God and fully man. If you hear any, any of those fundamental principles being contradicted from the pulpit, that would be a legitimate reason to separate yourself from that church body. Of course, the, same, the, the reverse is true. The body might separate you from itself if you are uh, saying heretical things and, and, and spreading uh, that kind of thing. Um, the, other, the other reason I would see for leaving a local church would be uh, some open sin not being addressed and dealt with. Uh, again, I would compare that to adultery. So if something's happening amongst the body or amongst the leadership and it's known about and it isn't being dealt with, that would be a legitimate reason to separate yourself. Again, it works the other way too. You, know, you might find yourself separated if you are engaging in something and will not deal with that, will not submit to church discipline uh, over that issue. Um, now there are, there are some other, a few other reasons. Certainly one that's a big difference in marriage is if you you know, or for whatever reason, leave the area or taken out of the area. So, of course, if you're a member of this church and you're a student, we've been talking about that, a number of students uh, have been joining. So when you graduate and move to wherever you're going to move, of course, you move your membership to where you are, and we will send you out in love. So the point is not at all, you know, you're just anchored. You become member one place, and you're anchored there for the rest of your life no matter what. I mean, there are, that would be a, a, a very a breakdown of that analogy of marriage. Um, God has sent you somewhere else, and of course you join uh, where. But the reasons to leave are, are few. You know, not, I don't like the music. Not, I don't like the preaching style. Not, I just kind of, somebody just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I don't like dealing with them. Again, that's what community is about. It's about dealing with things that aren't in your comfort zone. Um, I'm not being fed is... Um, one of the worst ones, I think. Uh, that's you don't you shouldn't be coming to church to get fed. Um, you may be fed, but that's not the we come here to worship, uh, which is not about consuming, right? It's sort of you know that consumer mentality again. You know, worship is a giving; uh, it's not a receiving. Now, again, we receive blessing. We receive. We may feel feel that we have been fed or filled uh, when we worship, but that's not the main point. So um, uh, think, think of the seriousness of the covenantal relationship. Um, in Philippians, Paul t uh, talks about, um, you know, some people are maybe more familiar with this than others, the, the two women who are mentioned briefly, Yodia and Synecdoche, are, who are uh, fighting apparently, not getting along with each other. And Paul writes to the church at Philippi, not to these two women, you know, 
one of you should probably just find another church. You know, that would probably be better since you two aren't getting along. He says, hey, you know, agree with each other and everybody else, help them. Help them to agree with each other in the Lord. Um, uh, that's what community is all about and that's what um, covenant relationship is all about. Um, now, I'm speaking in sort of ideal terms. I mean, the world is broken. Uh, we broke it a long time ago. <laughs> and it's still broken and it's going to be broken until Christ returns and redeems everything. So this doesn't always work out perfectly, but we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, strive to live with each other in community, to formalize our covenantal relationship as church members, to submit to our spiritual leaders as they have been established by God uh, in the local church body. And it kind of brings me to my last point that, that this idea of membership is really integral to what it is to be a Christian. Uh, for believers, scripturally, membership in a local church body is assumed. Um, there is no sense anywhere in scripture of somebody who becomes a Christian and then just kind of wanders around on their own um, and maybe eventually picks a church that they want to go to, uh, but then doesn't like that, so then goes to a different church. That, that's just a, an entirely, I will call that an unbiblical uh, concept. Um, it is a group of people who are submitting to elders, who are loving each other, who are acting as a body, as we uh, have been reading about it in 1 Corinthians. Um, it's a statement, church membership is, of your membership in the kingdom as I said earlier. It's a way of, of proclaiming to the world, again, much like marriage, uh, I am in a covenantal relationship with this body. I am, in, in a sense, an ambassador uh, for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, another concept in the church membership book is that uh, a church is sort of like an embassy uh, of the kingdom of God. And we are, you know, part of that embassy, you know, and we are ambassadors, each of us, you know, to the world. As a child, I was a member of a Baptist boys organization called the Royal Ambassadors, and it was all about that. It was about how, you know, we're members, and we, we're part of this body, and we are reaching out to the world and, and, and declaring, not hiding the fact that we are uh, part of this kingdom, but formally allying ourselves with our king, uh, and through this local embassy, um, this whole idea of embodiment, of um, the, the relationship of living in community really does find its, its uh, root for me in this, the passage we've been studying from 1 Corinthians. Um, the body does not consist of one member, but many. God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, I would uh, encourage you to take this very seriously. Um, be motivated to serve this body, uh, not as a way of earning anything, not, not as a duty, uh, though duty is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think duty is... Uh, something that means that we do something even if we don't feel like it, if we don't want to because we have a duty to do it. Mark Twain, not a believer, uh, talked about duty and said there will be no duty in heaven because we won't need it because duty is this idea of 
well, I've got to do this even though I don't want to right now. Uh, okay, I'm kind of obliged to do it. But there'll be none of that in heaven um, when all is redeemed. Um, we're not earning our way into heaven by serving a church body. We're not doing something because we have to. We should do it out of gratitude. Uh, God has chosen us and arranged us as he will. Um, and out of gratitude for the great mercy that he has shown us, uh, we should serve him. I would encourage you to do that by serving in a church body. Um, we're not seeking God's favor. We've already found God's favor. And in gratitude, we should serve him. So think about these things as you think about the concept of membership uh, in this body, in any body. There, I'm sure there are visitors here today. Um, but take it seriously. Think about declaring your allegiance to the kingdom of God. Think about the, the fact that the Bible supports this idea that it's a covenant and that we're called consistently through Scripture to enter into covenantal relationships. And it's absolutely integral to who we are as believers. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we have to, to be together and to worship corporately. Uh, I just pray that uh, you would be with this, this body as we seek to uh, do. May Aaron's blessing keep you through the week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.